This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I sit down with Gina Martin-Adams. She is the head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo, a giant uh, bank here in the United States. And she's really a very, very interesting person, uh, a very senior woman in the position of equity strategy. You don't, you know, for, for most of the past few centuries, that has very much been a do- male-dominated position. And it's interesting to see somebody who is so smart and and experienced and articulate about how she approaches the business of uh, dealing with institutional clients who are um, looking to deploy their capital in a way that makes sense relative to the amount of risk they want to assume. Uh, I found her to be quite fascinating, quite knowledgeable. Uh, and if you're at all interested in uh, equity, investing, institutional trading, uh, this is a person that you should probably listen to. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Gina Martin-Adams. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Gina Martin-Adams. She is the head of equity strategy for Wells Fargo Security, which is uh, headquartered here in New York, at least the securities half of it. Right. A little background uh, about Gina. She is both a chartered financial analyst and a chartered market technician. Not a lot of CFA slash CMTs around. Uh, she uh, is also a member of the uh, Financial Women's Association and the Association of Pre- Professional Technical Analysts and a member of the Institutional Investors All-America Research Team. Gina, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so you're kind of a, a unique analyst in the world, um, not only because of the path your your career took in the various places you've worked, but the only other person I know of who's both a CFA and a CMT is is Jeff DeGraff. Okay. There uh, are, I think there are about 100 of us oh, really? in the world now, maybe getting closer to 200 now. And but. how many CFAs are there? <laughs> uh, thousands. Thousands and thousands. thousands. So, yeah. so let's jump right into this. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you work your way into the financial services industry? Okay. So I actually joined the company known as First Union right out of college. I went to the University of Florida, thought I was going to be a marketing major, Took my first finance course and literally fell in love. Mm-hmm. Added that to my um, to my docket. First Union. Now that wasn't isn't Tennessee, is it? No, it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte. Okay. Yeah, it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they did a big recruiting down at um, the university. I ended up in a program called the Capital Management Group's training program. Mm-hmm. So where the securities business, the investment banks all have their two-year training program for bringing analysts into the investment bank. We had one for capital management, investment management. Mm -hmm. And I joined that, rotated around, um, got to know the various divisions of capital management and ended up on the, in the investments group. Ah, Uh, very very interesting. So you mentioned First Union. I know of them through Wheat First Union. And that eventually, down the road, got taken over by Wachovia. Yep. I don't remember how many steps there were in between. And then- <laughs> Many, fin- many steps. Uh, there was, so there were yeah. a number of, of different things. Ultimately, um, during the Great Recession, Wells Fargo took over Wachovia. Right. I think that turned out to be a pretty, uh, a pretty good fit. Yes. So what is a day in the life like 
for a strategist at, at Wells Fargo? I don't think there is any day, okay. to be honest with you. It's, so it's different from day to day. Every day is different. Um, you Which know, the basics are you break my job into research. Mm-hmm. So coming up with an idea, researching those ideas, then writing those ideas into a report, and then mm-hmm. communicating those ideas to the world. So you think of it in sort of three parts. Mm-hmm researching an idea, writing an idea, and then communicating that idea, getting that idea out is mm-hmm. really what we're I'm focused on. So some days are very research intensive. Some days are very communications intensive. It sort of depends. But What, what sort of clients do you typically work yeah. with? So I'm dedicated to the institutional clients. Mm-hmm. So the portfolio managers of the world, the hedge fund managers of the world, the pension funds of the world as well. Um, professional there's, investors are my audience. And there's been a lot of uh, changes going on in that a space lately. A lot of lately, changes, yes. Which, which must make your work pretty interesting. It does. It's, you know, it's not interesting just because of the content, which I think is always interesting. You know, where is the equity market headed and how do we take advantage of different trends um, in the macro economy, in stocks? But it's also interesting in the client base and the struggles that they've gone through and the the changes in the client base have been pretty phenomenal. I've been doing equity strategy now for nine years and my product has changed a lot, but also the client has changed a lot over the last nine years. So, so let's work backwards. Nine years would put us at 2007. Yes. So you moved into equity strategy. I did. Just before... Uh, just a small crash, little, small little change. Little wrinkle in the, in yeah. the charts. So yeah. what was it like starting this new position just yeah. as the world was going to hell? So in 2007, it was great. I actually worked as an economist for John Sylvia, our chief economist, for several years before 2007, and then moved in 2007 from Charlotte to New York Mm -hmm. to start this equity strategy product. Our entire equity trading business is in New York, so it made a lot of sense for me to be here. So the move to New York was fantastic, you know, a lot of big changes. We got we had about six months to design a product and start putting it out. We were putting it out in 2007 to early 2008 when things started to get a bit rocky. Mm-hmm. And then the summer of 2008 hit. And we had really just gotten comfortable with getting the product out there, understanding the client base. And then it just went bananas. So, to suddenly say, the tide the went least. out. And, yeah. uh, so what was it like at, at Wells Fargo when everything was just going? Or at the time, at really, Wachovia, you, were, yeah. you were Wachovia when yeah. everything was going crazy. What what was that like? It was tough. Uh, you know, I can remember many days, especially over that summer after Bear, mm-hmm. um, many days of a lot of question marks as to where we were headed. Mm-hmm. There was one weekend, you may recall, when it was- September. Who's going to buy, yes, who's going to buy Wachovia or take over Wachovia? Will it be Citibank or Wells Fargo? And, and it's and, kind of ironic that Citibank actually thought they could take over <laughs> yeah, anybody. <laughs> they were on the verge of their own bailout. It's yeah. In it, fact, it was a memory, wild time period. If memory serves, there was a negotiation with the FDIC, sort of managing it, talking to City, and when Wells Fargo stepped up, it was like, "Hey, thanks for coming by, but now a real buyer is here." Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not overstating that, am I? Uh, you know, I don't know all the details of everything that happened. I can say internally, mm-hmm. there was a lot of rooting for Wells Fargo because Wells Fargo didn't have an investment bank. So it was so a, there just would have been instant, yeah. instant department, right? Better capital, right? All sorts of of better uh, adjustments in terms yeah. of it was just easier on us. So from a personal perspective, you know, uh, and for my colleagues as well. 
there weren't any competitors internally within Wells Fargo. So and, there was a chance that we could survive. As opposed you know, to and, going and to somebody, this, they had you know. City had Solomon Brothers, they had exactly. all these other things. That sounds fascinating. Very big equity business at City. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Gina Martin-Adams. She is the equity strategist at Wells Fargo. And let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be uh, a woman working in the world of finance. We've had other women strategists like Liz Ann Saunders. Kelly Coffey is the head of the private bank at, at J.P. Morgan. But Something that Michelle Meyer said, she's one of the economists at Merrill Lynch, really, really stayed with me, which was, and this is a, a, a quote, the lack of women at the top of the industry serves as a real challenge for women in finance. Uh, okay. Do you agree with that? What do you think about that? Uh, you know, the way that I see it is being a woman on Wall Street is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of blessings that coming come along with being a woman on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You are immediately recognizable. <laughs> right. Right. There aren't You're that not many women on Wall Street. You're another guy in a blue suit yeah. with a white yeah. shirt and a red tie. Right. So, you know, on, on that hand, it's a blessing. It's a curse because you don't 100% fit in mm -hmm. still. Uh, but I think, you know, I have to admit there have been remarkable changes just in my career. And I meet a lot more women doing what I do and a lot more women that sit across the table as clients today than I did even nine years ago when I started an equity really? strategy and certainly more than I did 20 years ago when I started so, in this business. So I started on a trading desk and I remember the days of the boom boom rooms and yeah. the sexism on Wall Street was it was pretty much a yeah. frat house. That seems to have really matured dramatically yeah, it's very past different. 10, 20 years. Absolutely. And I had I didn't see that in my career because I was on the buy side for the first several years of my career. And then I was an economist. So, you know, I've only been in the equity business specifically for the last 10. And I didn't see that over you the didn't, last really. 10. And but, certainly don't see that today. Well, it, it's completely different. It's yeah. completely changed. What other changes have you seen that have taken place, whether it's yeah. uh, on the equity side I don't just mean as a woman, but what have you seen change over the course of, of your career? I, the most dramatic change, I think, is the regulatory environment. It's post you know, uh, Dodd Frank, post financial crisis. Yeah, post financial crisis, but also post tech bubble bursting. I mean, oh, really? it, you know, I go back to the late '90s, and I did have a few years of of experience in the '90s, in the absolute boom years. You know, in the years when the investment bank was not entirely separate from the research mm -hmm. division, uh, while I was on the buy side and only peripherally noting these things. Yeah, the changes from 2002 to 2004, I think, were very profound for the investment banking industry. And now the changes post-financial crisis have been very profound for the banking industry at large. So you had two post-crisis periods of mm -hmm. regulatory change. And that's, I think, been the most profound change to the well, financial services business. The, anal the analysts, um, the crisis that we saw in the, the Enron, Jack Grubman, that, that right. whole run of stuff was really... Those were enormous changes yes. that took place uh, because at one point in time, I think the retail investor thought the analyst community worked for them. Right. And it, it was kind of a wake-up call when they realized, no, no, that's yeah. part of investment banking. Yeah. They're here to generate M&A and underwriting, not actually tell you what to buy right. and sell. Yep. I, I think that was a huge shock to people. Very, very big change. And so tell us about what you've observed firsthand yeah. uh, post-financial crisis mostly due to the Dodd-Frank changes. 
Well, you know, the first thing you observe is that the fastest growing divisions of banks are the regulatory and compliance departments. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. I mean, it's very... Headcount, budget, Absolutely. Power I mean, throughout you know, the Just keeping up with these compliance regulations is a tremendous challenge. Mm-hmm. You also have a level of conservatism. And Wells Fargo has always been a very conservative organization. Sure. So I think... You know, they're un- we're certainly unique in that in that aspect, but there's a level of conservatism across banks and especially in investment banks that maybe didn't exist. The risk taking is not as uh, extreme. Um, you That's know, there's always risk taking. It is an investment bank, but I think the decision process is a little bit different considering the regulatory angle. I mean, obviously, the, there's been a shift in even the, the capacity to trade mm-hmm. in these divisions is pretty much gone. So I think... You know, there have been a lot of changes, but a lot of them are related to regulatory pressures. Mm-hmm. The other big change that I see is, you know, there are really two. One is technological advancement is obviously changing the way in Enormous. which we do business. And that's changed from when I started in this business to make a trade in a mutual fund, you had to call a company. Huh. Right. I mean, it wasn't. It was very different. Right. Um, End of day trading at 401. Yes, exactly. You can make a phone call. Yeah. Get a, Sometimes you wouldn't get a price till 415. Exactly. It took a while. Oh, we're waiting yeah. for some you of the holdings the to settle out. You settle the accounts every night. Right. Yeah, I mean, just a totally different business model. Right. Um, and I was fortunate enough in, in my rotational training program that we referenced earlier in the program, uh, I was fortunate enough to sit on a desk where we designed the automated trading in mutual funds on the investment side oh, of the really? business. Yeah, so that was in the late 90s. Um, the technology has been there for a long time. Yes. Just building it and implementing right, it is exactly. a process. Think about it. There was no BlackBerry also, right? In the late 90s, nobody carried around a BlackBerry right. until right around 2000, Your cell phone was yeah. for voice. <laughs> exactly. Stop and think about That's that. That's a very big change. <laughs> you could barely SMS. That barely existed, yeah, short yeah, messaging. Not at so, all. Not at all. That, that's so, unbelievable. I mean, that's just an example of, of how different it is. So technology, and then what was the other The other thing, thing I think, is investor appetite for risk. And this sort of speaks to what the retail investor is doing with their capital. Mm-hmm. You go all the way back to 2000, that was pretty much the peak of household ownership of equity, equities, right? And we have yet to recover from the 2000 to 2000 bubble. And then on top of that, the 2000 to 2008, 2009 crash. And you, you have the housing collapse in the middle of that. Yeah. And then after that, you have the commodities collapse. Right. So, so that's four major booms that, right. that the individual investor yeah. has lived through. And they, and investors today think very differently than the the generation of investors prior to that. If you think about how the baby boomer generation sort of came up sure. um, in the workforce, they went through the eight, 1982 to 2000 biggest bull market Thousand percent history, run. Right? right? It was just incredible environment where obviously you owned stocks for the long haul, and obviously you put money to work in stocks, and you know your pension was clearly going to be there for you because the equity market was constantly right. rising. Bonds were in a bull market at the same time, and then in two thousand, really starting in two thousand, those assumptions started to break. Um, and I think that that's a huge change for the industry at large. Is what does the investor want? out of us? What do mm-hmm. they command out of us? And what is their perception of assets in general and their willingness to tolerate the risk that comes along with ownership? I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Gina Martin-Adams. She is the head of equity strategy for Wells Fargo Security, which is located here in uh, New York. Uh, in addition to being a member of the Institutional Investors all America research team. 
She is both a chartered financial analyst and a chartered market technician, which is a, a unique and interesting combination. Uh, and prior to working at Wells Fargo, uh, she was at Wachovia in the economics department, which was acquired by Wells Fargo uh, during the financial collapse. Let's talk a little bit about that summer, which yeah. was uh, a fun period of, of <laughs> Wall Street history, um, even though there was so much, um, in hindsight, it's a fascinating yeah. era. At the time, it was pretty frightening. People were genuinely afraid that right. the system itself was going to break, the right. entire financial system. Yeah, it was it was brutal, to say the least. I mean, it, what was amazing about that summer is if you look back at what the market did between the Bear Stearns collapse... Which and was, let's call that March was, 08, yeah, something spring, like that? the spring of March 08 sometime. And then the the big moment for us, obviously, was the uh, acquisition of Wachovia by Wells Fargo in September. Swooped in, what took it away from did, City. Right, the markets were actually remarkably stable during that period. They were June, bouncing July, up August. and down. They mm-hmm. were bouncing up and down, but they were range-bound. And then mm-hmm. September happened, and it was an absolute crash. But I distinctly recall sitting in my office during that summer and thinking, why is the market so ridiculously stable? What does the market know that I don't know? And you think back to that period, and there were a lot of people saying Bear was the big moment. That Bear was Stearns the was the big moment, and that right. was going to be it. And then suddenly you had this just wave of trouble that occurred in the in the fall. So even though that summer we think of it as you know that was when everything happened, it was really the fall when everything happened because the summer was a quiet period. It was oh you know things really don't seem stable, but the market seems somewhat stable. What's going on here? And then it just absolutely fell um, you know through the floor. P- the people forget if period. if you're if you're not looking at the charts, if you're not looking yeah. at the timeline, right? Housing prices. I want to say. Housing volumes peaked in 05 and then prices peaked in 06. And then when housing began to roll over and everything associated with mortgages, so first you have the the banks and then you have the securities firm and then you have the home builders. As home prices fell, that started a cascade. It did. I've argued that Lehman was just the first trailer to get taken out by the tornado. Yeah. It didn't cause everything. As long as home prices <laughs> were falling, yeah. that storm was going to take was everything mess. in its path. Yeah. So so you're at Wachovia. What is it like when, when you, you're hearing internally, hey, we might get bought by city. Here's what's going yeah. on. What, what, what did that feel like? Uh, it was pretty awful. I mean, I, I don't want to say it was debilitating. We still were producing research and kind you of in, wondering what the point was. But nonetheless, we you were in Charlotte then. Right? I was in New York. Actually. Oh, you were in New yeah, York. Okay. I was in New York and had just for a year been doing equity strategy at that point. Uh-huh. So it was it was tricky because you kind of wondered, you know, where are we going to end up? What are the and on a daily basis? Your my colleagues and I would discuss what are what are what's going to happen to us. Right? It was as much as we wanted to do business as usual. So much of your day was dedicated to following what's uh-huh. happening in the financial news, what's happening in the financial stocks, you know, who's crashing today, um, you know, where where's the next crisis, and how are we going to survive this? Uh, so it was it, it was really tough is the best the best word that I can I can use to describe it because it was in in a lot of ways somewhat indescribable because and, it was such a unique experience. And I recall having conversations with people walking down the streets of Manhattan right. and saying, you can feel the tension in the yes. air. It wasn't just me projecting. You could. There was a genuine angst throughout the entire city and I imagine throughout any other financial center right. in, the, in the world. Right. 
And so when did you guys find out, oh, by the way, Wells Fargo is our white knight. Everything is fantastic yeah. now. Well, it was a weekend. It happened over a weekend. As, as uh, all of as these all seem to do. great news does. I remember <laughs> it was a weekend. I don't remember the exact day, but I remember it was a weekend. We knew that Wells Fargo had bought us, but there was still a big question mark in our minds. And that mm-hmm. was Wells Fargo historically had not you know, been interested in taking the risk of having an investment bank. Mm-hmm. It's a very dedicated, very conservative, large bank. But having an investment bank was not something they historically had been interested in. So in the investment bank, we wondered, you know, are they actually going to be interested in the investment bank? And as much as they told us, yes, everything's fine, I don't think anyone felt 100% fine with it really until the end of 2008, early 2009 when we've got much more communication about, you know, this is happening. You really are part of this bank. So there was a period of time where, you know, the markets were imploding and Mm -hmm. that implosion itself made you question how much risk this giant institution was willing to take on with its investment bank. Um, But I think we really, we all started to feel a lot better late 2008, early 2009, that at the very least, Wachovia in its former self would survive as a, you know, Wachovia's investment bank would survive as a portion of Wells Fargo. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Gina Martin-Adams. She is the head equity strategist at Wells Fargo Securities, located here in New York. And let's talk a little bit about your unusual background, both a chartered market technician, meaning you look at charts, you're a technician, and a CFA, meaning you can do the full fundamental analysis Um, We had Jeff DeGraff on. He is really the only other person I know of personally who is both a a, uh, a CMT and a CFA. Yep. Uh, I think you mentioned there there are 100 or so uh, of you folks. Yeah. What motivated you to to go that route and get both designations? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I actually started as a fundamental analyst. You know, I think every university in the country in the 1990s, if you were taking, taking finance courses, you were taught a fundamental way to look at the market, right? right? And and ultimately you have to take the three-part, three-level yeah. CFA yep. exam. In investment management, it was very promoted. You know, go in to do the CFA, it's it's your next step. So I definitely did that and, and found it very valuable. But when I was working as an economist, um, we really struggled to explain things like oil prices and where mm-hmm. oil prices were going at the time. Remember, between 2001 and 2008, oil prices just soared. Right. right? We, we struggled to explain we had high where oil prices were. And the dollar collapsed, then 40% yeah, or so. Went pretty, went, went out of control, right? And we also really struggled, and I think most shops have struggled with forecasting the 10 year Treasury bond. Mm hmm. The famous Greenspan's famous conundrum, why is the 10-year treasury staying low despite short rates moving higher and, mm-hmm. and what's happening here? So I started to develop a lot more respect for what you know what the market was actually telling me and, what, and wanted to look at the charts and wanted to explore other options. Uh, because beyond the fundamental explanations. Right. Sometimes the price trend goes beyond the fundam- what fundamentals can justify. And so I started looking into... The technician's designation um, went through that process, and who'd you take the course with? I didn't take the course; I did it all on my own. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very similar to the CFA, where you read, you know, I don't know, eight different textbooks and right. and, and get a test, uh, three different tests to pass a test, and mm-hmm. so I didn't exactly do a course. 
But I will say there were some figures that really, there are some, um, you know, practitioners of technical analysis that really made a big impression on me. A few and examples. One is uh, John Murphy did a lot of work on intermarket analysis, which, you know, I think it really speaks to fundamental investors in a lot of way. You know, mm -hmm. we all know that there's an economic cycle. That's mm -hmm. a very fundamental tenant. But here is a technician talking about how to describe that economic cycle in charts and relative sector performance and the like. Um, here's the technician talking about bonds versus stocks versus commodities and different cycles that occur through time. Mm -hmm. There, thing, it, it's a lot of crossover, I think, between fundamentals and technicals um, in some of Murphy's, Murphy's work, and I really appreciated that. And then, uh, you know, I think on the technicals, there's no better explanation for market sentiment than the price itself, right? And Say that again. There's no better explanation for sentiment than, than the price. price itself. Meaning people are affected by whether their portfolios are going up or down. Exactly. Well, a... just price is representative of sentiment, mm -hmm. right? It's what stocks are doing is in and of itself sentiment. If stocks are rising, you've got buyers willing to bid up prices. If stocks are falling, you've got sellers willing to take less, right? So there's a, there's a psychological component that is completely and totally described through price that I absolutely appreciate. So so let's talk about that because I sense a bit of a chicken and egg yeah. conundrum. Uh, are buyers bullish and are driving prices higher or do buyers having just bought feel bullish because now that represents uh, I their think there's own a portfolio. little bit of both. I mm -hmm. think there's a little bit of both. And again, it's sentiment. So it's a fuzzy measure. <laughs> but I do think there's a little bit of both. And what we've done, some of our work is has focused along even describing valuation, which is a fundamental concept in right. technical terms. So if you look over a long period of history and you look at the market valuation and how it moves, a lot of people look at valuation and they say, okay, relative to a mean, where is valuation? Right. Assuming that valuations always mean revert. And that may be true over long periods of time, but if you really look at the chart of, a, of the market PE, it actually trends. Valuations go through periods of time where they're rising, and they go through periods of time where they're falling. I could not possibly agree more. I've argued that people misunderstand what a bull market is. A bull market isn't just a rise in price. A bull market is an increasing willingness yes. by buyers to pay more for right. the same share of stock. Absolutely. And that's represented in valuations, which ultimately drive prices higher. Right. And you see valuations peak at the end of a bull market yep. and bottom at the end of a bear market, Absolutely. more or less. Yeah. So there's, there's a great chart. Uh, I'll forward it to you. I'm trying to remember who put it out that literally breaks bull and bear markets into the top half of the chart is price. The bottom half of the chart is valuation, and if yeah. you look at it, it's pretty clear yeah. they trend together, Absolutely. And, and, and not not a big surprise. So, 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 given that, which is more significant for your market calls? Is it the yeah. valuation or is it the charts? Um, it's completely dependent on time period. Okay. Right. So we use we use technicals a lot more in describing short term mm -hmm. trends in the market. Right. Where. We're talking about you know, where's the market likely to go over the next three to six months. We oftentimes will reference things like what's breath doing? Is breath expanding or contracting? What's momentum doing? Is it confirming or diverging from price? And what does that mean for the short-term outlook for stocks? Mm -hmm. I'll use 
technicals for long-term trends when major crossovers occur in moving averages, then you get a better sense of whether you're in you're entering a longer-term bear or or mm-hmm. exiting a longer-term bull or or, or vice versa. Um, when we look at sort of valuing the market, it's a fundamental concept, right? What is a fair value for stocks right now is is a completely fundamental concept. Mm-hmm. And when we look at sort of forward 12 months, ideas for where should stocks trade, it's a fundamental concept. But I don't think that they're completely, I don't, I don't think you should detach fundamentals from technicals. I think that technicals describe the market and can be incredibly additive to a fundamental process as well. I mean, there are a lot of fundamental analysts who I call closet technicians. Yeah, there are a lot of <laughs> that's for sure. Fundamental analysts who don't—they—they'll tell you they don't believe in technicals, but what fundamental analyst doesn't look at a price chart? You know, Ralph. That's Akim- what technicals are. Ra- Ralph Akampora, who um, pretty much created the Market Technicians Association way back when, used to say. Fundamentals tell you what to buy and technicals tell you when to buy. Yes. And I I think that's significant for people who are wondering why we talk about charts versus listeners who may be hearing, well, don't the fundamentals, isn't that what matters? Yes, but sometimes the stock has already run up. Right. And you want to know about that before before you put money to work. So so, um, between the two of them, which is the more significant when it comes to making a, a buy or sell decision? Uh, again, I, I use technicals more for timing mm-hmm. and fundamentals more for long term. But if you look at my model, for instance, for sector selection, which is what we spend the vast majority of our time on is sector and industry selection, allocation recommendations. Um, it's equal parts technicals and fundamentals. Mm-hmm. It's equal parts price momentum, earnings revision momentum as the more technical concepts and valuation and earnings estimate achievability, which are the more fundamental concepts. So I literally use them in equal parts for the vast majority of my work. So I'm going to ask you the same question, but I'm going to ask the inverse of it. Yeah. Between technicals and fundamentals, which impact of those forces do you get more grief about oh. from from customers? Okay, meaning when you make a, a technical call and and customers push, what generates more pushback? The technical calls or the fundamentals? Oh, a hundred percent the technical calls. Really, one hundred percent zero on the fundamental. <laughs> side. Well, the fundamental yeah. side is a narrative, and people can wrap their head yes. around that. Yeah, the technicals are well. This is what the chart says, and some people yeah obviously have a hard time yeah. with that. Well, and. Somebody very much more brilliant than me stated, uh, you put this idea in my head years ago that one of the sort of, you know, more disappointing aspects of our community of investment investment professionals is we have this tendency to water our weeds and pull our flowers. Always. Right. Instead of watering our flowers and pulling our weeds. And technicals help you not to do that. They help you to continue to ride a price trend that's still moving higher, even if valuations are getting a bit stretched and every fundamental part of your body is saying, uh, maybe I don't necessarily want to continue to own this stock. The technicals help, help you to stay in that trade. On the, other, on the other end, if the fundamentals are still great, but the price trend has turned, the technicals tell you to get out of that idea, right? But on in this business, we have this tendency to want to ignore the technicals and really focus on what we truly believe, which is our sort of fundamental basis for why I bought that stock or why I'm selling that stock. And sometimes the technicals tell you that you're wrong, the, and we need to respect that. The narrative is very reassuring. Look, everybody who ever started on a trading desk in this business, as I did, or pretty much any other part of the of of the financial industry, is always told, uh, cut your losers short and let your winners run. Right. Understanding that and actually doing it it's, are two completely yeah, different right. things. 
So for listeners who might want to find any of your research or writing, where's yeah. the best place for them to go? Uh, well, it's pretty restricted, actually. <laughs> the uh, I am the institutionally designated equity strategist, so my work is, so I send it out on a distribution list so they mm-hmm. can contact me at gina.martinadams at wellsfargo.com, and I can get them on the distribution. But generally, if you want to get access to my research, you have to be able to get through to our website, which means you have to be an institutional investor. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things equity. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedbacks, and suggestions. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm here with Gina Martin-Adams, who I keep saying her name faster and faster, and that's why I stopped during the broadcast to say Gina Martin-Adams, because suddenly <laughs> became that's right. Gina Martin-Adams. Um, so you were talking during the broadcast portion about um, the change that technology has wrought yeah. to the industry. So I have just... It happened today is the only reason why the story is so fresh in my mind. So as is often its ilk, the Long Island Railroad uh, had a, had a, the whole system is closed this morning. Not actually not for anything they did wrong. Somebody was struck by a train and anytime there's a, you know, one of those events, everything freezes. Oh God, it's, how awful. I don't, yeah, it's, it's terrible. I don't want to go into the details, but so a bunch of people at my train station, we all jump in a cab and we head over to Manhasset which is the adjacent train line, which is unaffected by this because it, the, where the accident was is bypassed. Okay. One of the gentlemen um, is an uh, one of the people on the in the cab is an older gentleman, and we were all talking about you know what we were doing and and he was going in for a board meeting and he worked in in the industry years ago and he was telling the story that in the 1960s and 70s clients would come into their office not only with stock certificates uh-huh. but with cash okay and he had to get a carry permit for a handgun because he was the manager of the office and he had to walk around the block often carrying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of certificates bearer bonds cash oh my gosh. i'm like what what sort of a caveman yeah. industry so i said so let me, and he's been sort of out of the business for a few years. He's on some boards. He's in the city, you know, I guess once a month or something like that. Like, let me tell you how the technology has changed. We have a scanner for our local bank account, uh-huh. and we have a scanner for our custodian. And when checks come in, we don't even take them to no. the bank. They get scanned. A photocopy gets uploaded to, I shouldn't even call it a photocopy, a scan of, of the of the check gets uploaded to our cloud. Right. And after we get the confirm, 30 seconds later, that the deposit is accepted, the check gets shredded. Yep. It's not like you even have to walk around the right. corner to the bank to make a deposit. And this guy's telling stories about <laughs> having to carry a handgun because New York was not the safest place in the No, 1970s. definitely not. So you, you were telling the story about how technology has yeah. changed stuff. All I can think of is this poor guy literally is packing heat because he has bonds and certs. Crazy. And he said, he goes, he occasionally would get a big pile of cash. But just for the certificates and bonds, you know, you take a bearer bond, 
that's as good as cash if you could take right. if you're a sophisticated Absolutely. enough thief back in the 1970s. So that's how much <laughs> technology. Imagine you're working in a brokerage firm and you have to get a gun yep. so you could deposit client assets. Yep. Just just insane. So you talked about technology. One of the things we didn't get to is there's been a bit of a shift. It, it's it's not everybody, but there's a big shift away from active to passive. Yes. How, how does that impact what you do? What do you what do you see from from your perch looking at institutional uh, yes. trading? Um. So it's definitely impacted my client base. I'd say that's the biggest impact is in the client base, mm -hmm. how money is managed and the products that they offer to customers are very different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it doesn't impact my work as much because I'm still making sector and industry allocations, recommendations. That still ultimately is relevant for if I'm going to buy, for instance, if I'm going to go along a healthcare ETF or... Mm -hmm. Uh, a technology ETF. It's still relevant there, but for clients, it's it's changed a lot. Our clients are the institutional investors. What are the products that their their clients are asking them for? It's passive products in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my client may want something very different than they would have wanted in the past, and we've all had to adjust as a result of that. So right? let me double down with the same question. That word double down is uh, in this political <laughs> season is in my head. Um, how does the rise of passive and indexes and ETFs, yeah. how does that impact the way you do market analysis or does it not matter? If money's flowing into e yeah. equities, if it flows into passive indexes or if it flows into individual stocks or mutual funds, does that ha actually have an impact? And the reason I ask is there are people who are insisting all this money flowing to passive is a bubble, I've heard that phrase, which seems a little okay. curious. And then I've had other people say, all this passive investing is impacting my ability to figure out what's going on in the market. I don't think it necessarily has impacted our ability to figure out what's going on in the market. I mean, you know, prices are prices. Right. Uh, earnings are earnings. Regardless of who's buying stocks, somebody's buying stocks at most points in time. What has impacted us in the sort of shift to passive versus active, um, part of it is a measurement issue, right? Because when you look at mutual fund flows through this cycle, mm -hmm. and you look at what's gone into the U.S. equity market, we're still actually sitting on net negative inflows to the U.S. equity market from 2009 to date, if you look at the official data. Now, now that's a fascinating yeah. data point because the market's done nothing but go up since 2009. Exactly. So how significant are outflows if the market shrugs it off and just keeps going yeah, higher? It's hard to it's hard to tell. So right. that's what's important. That's what's tricky is maybe something's gone awry in the measurement because the measurement is based on the idea that you have these sort of actively managed funds and they're easily measured. They report their assets, right? Mm -hmm. There's clearly something going on with passive investment. That's where all the dollars have gone so far this cycle. And maybe we're under measuring what's going into the equity market. So if you were basing that's a methodology, a methodology at all on flows. Uh-huh. And we dropped sector flows from our methodology years ago because we were not able to prove a relationship between flows into sector-based funds and sector performance. Right. Um, there was a firm, TribTabs, years yes. ago that used to track that stuff, and it seems dark pools and, and all sorts of other things kind of blinded that flow analysis. I don't know if that's really what, what caused it, but 
it, the ability to track where money was going seems to it's, have been a little obscure. Yeah, I think it's very, very difficult. It also moves so quickly mm-hmm. right, with the high-frequency trading sure. and whatnot. So I think it's it's difficult to capture flows to the extent that we used to be able and maybe part of that is active maybe it's maybe i'm just maybe part of that is active versus passive maybe Uh i'm just finding a scapegoat because it's so difficult now i don't know um but i i think it's it's definitely changed the way that investors approach markets the other the other thing i think is that it's done is made access to non-domestic stocks emerging markets developed x north america Much easier to do. It's just easier to access and opportunities cheaper. outside of the U.S. It used to be if you wanted to invest overseas, you could invest in a mutual fund, but they were very pricey. Yes. They've become very reasonable. Right. So it's changed the dynamic. No, no doubt about that. So you mentioned something during the broadcast portion about um, the 2000 dot-com crash, the the financial crisis, and I brought up housing and, and commodities crashing. So how important is that psychologically to the shift towards passive? Have people just thrown up their hands and said, you know what, I give up. I'm just going to index and not even think twice about it. I think that's part of it. I Mm -hmm. think more importantly, it's been investors have just shunned the equity market altogether. Oh, really? And if you look at household ownership of equities, and this comes from this Fed survey of uh, consumer finances, which they do every three years, you go back to the financial crisis in 2008 to the most recent survey, which was as of 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Every three years. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of the dated. flow of funds. The right. Z1 is. No, that's is, quarterly. Yeah, but that's, this is a. It's but a that doesn't break it survey. down in that great detail. Right. This survey of consumer finances shows that all segments of consumer income classes have actually seen their holdings in equity markets shrink. Over that Even time. as the market has gone up. Yeah, except for the top 5%. Only right. the top 5% of income earners are actually still actively investing in the equity market, whether it be active or passive, they're putting money to work in stocks. And the rest of the income groups, at least top in 2013, 5%. yeah, had And not. I'm going to guess that's half or maybe even more of the total equity ownership? At least, yeah. yeah. So it's always been skewed, but now we're saying it's even more skewed. Yes, yeah. So the bottom 95% of income-earning households have largely not participated at all in this massive bull run that we've that's had from 2009 200-plus percent. Yeah. So that's the bigger impact. I do think that there is something to be said for you know investors also moving into passive because, and this goes back to the 2000 crisis. I keep going back there because I think that's when all of this really shifted. Mm-hmm. The 2008 exacerbated the trouble. But in 2000 to 2002, there was definitely a shift in investor sentiment toward equities. And a lot of that is all the accounting scandals that came up, the research and banking scandals that were uh-huh. uncovered, um, and World investors, Enron, yes, exactly, stuff, lost stuff. a lot of faith uh-huh. in the institution of investment itself and the financial markets themselves. Um, and I think that started back in the two thousand to two thousand two period. So you reference price as a key driver of sentiment. Yeah. Let me let me share a little price data with you yes. that confirms what you're saying. Um, when we look at the democratization of investing, somewhat in the 80s, but a lot in the 90s, if you look at where the drumbeat of financial television and press was, it was all technology. Yes. I think if you look at the average portfolio, and I've looked at a ton of portfolios over the years of individual investors, huge, uh, like I was, at one point, I could look at a portfolio, 02, 03, 04, and say, oh, America Online, Dell, I'd go through the list. 
I knew, oh, this is a Merrill Lynch portfolio, and this is a Morgan Stanley portfolio, and this is... So it was a whole run of different things. Not that they were bad portfolios, but it was a lot of the same names. Right. And And if you think about the technology sector shellacked almost 80% from peak to trough, hey, if your holdings are concentrated in the technology and that sector gets whacked 80%, that might change... You might take your ball and, and go home. Yep. You might not be as inclined to play in that same space again. Yep. So your comment that price drive sentiment, it might have driven sentiment to the point where people said, okay, yeah. I give up. Well, and we saw that, right? I mean, you saw technology relative performance really from 2000 into the 2007 peak was pretty terrible. I mean, nobody was putting more money to work in tech stocks after that blow up. And it's been the same with financials. I mean, I think financials, a lot of what's happened with the financial sector, relative performance in the S&P 500 over this cycle is legacy what happened in 2008, 2009. It's an amazing parallel. If you look at the 2000 peak, you bro- broached that peak and the S&P and the Dow 2007 or so, uh-huh. something like that. You didn't do it uh, the for the NASDAQ, NASDAQ yep. until, you know, until you got back over 5,100 or so, right. which is... 2014, 2013, uh-huh. somewhere. That, that's, or was it even 2015? That was a long, long time to wait right. to get back to break even. Not a whole lot of dividends in that space either. Right. So now the financials, how parallel is the financial sector, a, a key lubricant of economic growth? How, how parallel are the financials to technology? Yeah. Well, the one big difference is the financial stocks never achieved the excessive valuation and this extraordinarily positive market sentiment and the bubble status that tech did. Financials as a share of the economy got very big. Housing specifically as a share of the economy was double its historical average share by its peak in 2006. So it was Say pretty Say that again, clear. double its historical average, average by 06. Share of the economy, yeah. So, so some people have called that the financialization of the economy. Other people have used the fl- phrase FIRE, financial right. insurance and real, real estate, estate. Yep. as because real estate obviously so mortgage-driven. How much have we normalized finance as an overall part of the economy? It's back to actually just below its historical average. Oh, really? So it's, is that going to yeah. keep going? And uh, I know I never yeah. asked for forecasts on the show. But <laughs> is it going to keep getting lower? What is the yeah. trend? Is the trend that it's a small, increasingly small portion of the overall overall economy, or are we starting to see a bottoming out process? We've started to see a bottoming out process. Really, starting in 2011 and, and accelerating in big... 2013, we started to see a bottoming process, and now it's growing as a share of the economy again. But we still see the big bank stocks, the big brokerage yeah. firms, not exactly lighting the world on fire. No. How much of that is they're still carrying a lot of bad debt and bad paper, or is it just people are a little skittish of the entire sector and it's a sentiment thing? I think a very little of it is bad debt, at least Most for the been. U.S. banks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it uh, next to nothing is bad debt. There have been some scares, and this year's scare was the energy complex. And sure. what does that really mean for bank balance sheets? But when you look at energy as a share of the debt on or the uh, assets on bank balance sheets, it's, it's tiny. So right? it's, it's funny you bring that up because first we heard, uh-oh, look, they did it again. It's the energy yeah. sector. Here comes another crisis. After that, we heard... Subprime auto, yeah. this is the new subprime mortgage. Right. And somewhere in the middle of it is student loans. That's right. the next thing that's going to destroy us all. Yeah. But meanwhile, none of these things have turned out to be right. remotely like subprime mortgages. And that's the big psychological difference between today versus 2005 to 2007, right? 2005 to 2007, you did have 
some people suggesting subprime is a problem and everyone was massively denying this as, sure. a, as an underlying issue. Today, anything's a massive problem for the banks. So I think a lot of what's holding financials back is this psychological impediment. It's when's the next crisis coming? You know, is it going to generate out of Europe? Is it going to come out of China? Is it the energy complex? Is it student loan debt? It, you can name a gazillion things that are going to, quote unquote, bring the banks under. The next which subprime. Which so unlikely. Right. But the psychology is set up to expect that crisis. It's classic recency effect. Every yeah. general is fighting the last war. Absolutely. Every investor is thinking about here comes the next credit crisis. Yeah. It, it's never what just happened. It's always something yeah. different, which is probably why post-tech bubble, when you looked at the home builders, when you looked at banks, when you looked at brokerage firms, they were reasonably priced Absolutely. in 05, 06, 07 as each of them yeah. also had their 75 to 80% yeah. collapse. Right. Uh, good rule of thumb, a sector outside of leather belts and steam engines that drops 80% Typically a good a good buy signal. Absolutely. I would, I would imagine. <laughs> All right. So I know I only have you for another 10, 15 minutes. Let me get to some of my favorite questions, the standard questions I ask all my guests. You told us about your background. Tell us a little bit about some of your early mentors. Okay. Who are the people who uh, were deeply influential to you? Wow. Um, well, I had a number of really, really great colleagues in the First Union, Wells Fargo, uh, or Wachovia, early Wells Fargo days. I worked for John Sylvia, who's our chief economist. So I know John for a long time. He's a fishing buddy yeah, of mine. He was very influential. Um, I worked with John And by Lynch. the way, before you move off of John yeah. Sylvia, is there like a nicer person on the world? No, than he's him? fantastic. And he, when I was in my late 20s, you know, threw me out into things that I never thought I could do. So he was really sort of pushed me forward to try new things and, and really stretch my boundaries. And I will always appreciate that. And he's and, still and, a mentor today. And John, if you're listening, you know we have to get you in here one of these days. So, <laughs> so we will. He He's not in New York. He's in... Uh, he's in Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Um, so in the... Earlier on in my career, I worked with John Lynch, who is a market strategist for Wells Fargo as well, but he's on the buy side of the firm. He mm -hmm. had a number of years in New York working with DLJ. He's got a lot of you know great historical understanding of markets and really started forming my interest in strategy as a function. Um, you By know, the way, great you, you... technicians out there. Charlie Kirkpatrick is a current fantastic mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Charlie does a lot of amazing work on price and momentum um, and has written a number of books. Uh, and he's he's a fantastic mentor as what, well. Give me the name of one of his books. Oh, it's very technically oriented, so I'll have to look it up for you. But you just search on Charlie Kirkpatrick. He writes with uh, Julie Dahlquist out of uh, Texas mm -hmm. um, on price and momentum signals. And, and they're, I think, very, very useful and very helpful. Um, he's so, helped me bring an understanding of sort of backtesting and optimization that I didn't really have, you know, five years ago. So you mentioned books. What are some of your favorite books, be they investing books, fiction or nonfiction? Oh, yeah. So I, I talked a lot about investing books already with Kirkpatrick and, mm -hmm. and uh, John Murphy. So in terms of, you know, personal, more fiction oriented books, I'm a huge Steinbeck fan. Okay. I don't know where this came from, if it's because Grapes we went through. Yes, exactly, which is so, Eden, it I'm, sounds so boring, right. but I think when we went they through the 2008- They become classics for a reason. Yeah. You know, it's not just let's randomly yeah. pick 
a uh, Daniel Steele yeah. novel. The Steinbeck survives for great a very lessons explicit reason. as to what a real depression looks like. Right. Right. I mean, it it helps. Those Does it make you things. crazy when people say, you know, this isn't a recession, this is a depression? Yes. Well, not if you look at the data. If you yeah. understand what it's like when one in five houses go into foreclosure and the unemployment rate is thirty percent. That's yeah. there is no real technical definition of a depression. Right. This was a bad recession. Yeah. It's kind of hard to yeah. say. It's it's pretty crazy. When you look at our standard of living and, mm-hmm. you know, I understand that there are still a lot of households that are struggling sure, to make absolutely. ends meet. But you look at our broad standard of living and you compare that to what happened in the Depression. And there's it's nobody no better at doing that than Steinbeck. Yeah, there's um, no comparison. Look, yeah. the bottom half of the country is certainly not seeing income gains. The bottom 50% of, of incomes. But the standard of living, you know, people are not going through what they went through. Right. I mean, they're, when you actually look at the data, the Great Depression is horrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's gee, this is inconvenient. It's people died. It led yeah. to wars. It led to civil unrest. It was really horrific. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people don't realize how bad things got right. in, in the late 20s right. and, and early 30s. Could have um, been a lot worse. Um, so what other, uh, yeah. what other books? Uh, on the nonfiction books? side, I actually love Milton Friedman's work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've devoured those books over time. Now, he's kind of fallen from grace yeah, amongst economists, crazy. which yeah. is really surprising. But if you look at some of his work, uh, he did the Monetary History of the United States, which kind I have of looks that. all the way back in time. And I've referenced that piece um, on a number of occasions, looking at what banks did, for example, in the Great Depression versus what they're doing today. You can look at some of his work, and it, it shows it has great historical perspective. You can find little nuggets of information and that, that are that, so very useful. That ultimately led to Ben Bernanke saying to him, "Hey, we messed up last time, and we won't do it again." Yes, absolutely. That, that was pretty. Uh, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and how about one nonfiction that's not. That's not finance related. Or, that's, or not that's economics almost impossible. Related. Right. <laughs> Everything I read in a nonfiction universe is either finance or economics right, related. So give me non-economics but finance. To... What what have you read that you like? That's that's not finance but economics. No, no, other way around. That's not economics but is finance. But is just finance. Uh, probably Moneyball. You know, okay. Michael you can't Lewis. go wrong with yeah, any, any Michael Lewis is pretty fun. He has a, a book coming out. I think it's December. Yeah. Um, on Kahneman and Tversky, and I'm sure that's going to be spectacular. Yes, I'm really, definitely. I, I'm going away in February, and I already have that book teed up. Yeah, um, it's ready to go. Yeah, for it's not even published yet, and I know I'm reading that on a beach uh, somewhere. Um, all right, so let me get to my um, last few questions before I, I have to send you or I have to let you go on your way. Um, so if you had some millennial... Or a recent college graduate come to you and say, I'm thinking about finance uh, as a career. What sort of advice would you give them? Go for it. I mean, it, you know. Just like that. Yeah. If you love finance, there is a home for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this generation is very different than past generations in that they have sort of a different standard for what they want out of a work-life balance. You know, mm-hmm. when I got out of school, the goal was to work 120 hours a week for two years right. so that you could be in an investment bank, right? So this is a little bit different, but I think that there are a lot of opportunities in finance within, within and without. Uh, even and as it shrinks, even banks. as the headcount is I coming do. Down. I think, you know, if you have a passion for this business, you will find a home. That um, makes sense. But you have to have the passion. 
And my final question, what is it that you know about investing in equity markets today that you wish you knew when you began 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. I should have looked at this question more carefully. <laughs> I warned you. I said, look at section five. It requires a little memory yeah. and thought. Um, what do I know? The price trend matters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You when I started out, I was, I was fully fundamentally biased. Mm -hmm. You know, I had my... I had my fundamental hat on and I held to it and I've held to it too strongly on a number of occasions. I mean, the times that I regret most in my career and in my investing life are the times when I ignored what the market was telling me. Everybody says that. Everybody says, you it's, know, I had a story, the price told me something else, yep. I ignored the price, I listened to the story to my Do not my get regret. caught in the, the idea that you know better than the millions of investors out there that make a market. Gina, thank you so much for, for doing this. This has been um, absolutely fascinating. Uh, for those of you listening at home, um, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and take a look on Apple iTunes, and you could look up an inch or down an inch and see any of the other, I want to say, 103 or so episodes that we've done in the past. Uh, you can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Our email address is MIB, which stands for Masters in Business, MIB Podcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Michael Batnick, my head of research, Charlie Volmer, our producer, and Taylor Riggs, our booker. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>